My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Bruce Berry is a professor of management and sociology at the University of Vanderbilt. He's an authority on negotiation, ethics, and workplace rights, and draws on psychology, sociology, management, philosophy, and public policy in his research and teaching. He's the author of the book Speechless, The Erosion of Free Expression in the American Workplace, which was published in 2007, years before the general public was aware of this issue. And his textbook on negotiation is the most widely used book on the subject in colleges and universities worldwide. Bruce is also a member of the National Board of Directors of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and is a contributing writer on politics and public policy for the Tennessee Lookout, a nonprofit news site based in Nashville. Bruce earned an undergraduate degree in foreign affairs and speech communication from the University of Virginia, a master's degree in speech communication from the University of Virginia, and a PhD in business from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I hope you enjoy learning from Bruce Berry today, because I always do. Bruce, it's great to chat with you today. When I was applying for postdoc positions, I applied to Vanderbilt. And then again, when I was applying for tenure track jobs, I applied to Vanderbilt. Uh, It didn't work out either time, but I'd like to think there's a version of me in the multiverse that works at Vanderbilt. And regardless, I got to meet you through this process. uh, So I'm grateful that I get to talk to you again today. And it's uh, just a great pleasure to be with you, Nate, and to, to have this conversation. Well, Bruce, as you think back on your research, are there two to three simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned that you'd most like to pass along to others? Well, you know, when I think about my research, it, it, I've been sort of a, a, I hate to use the word dilettante, but I've, I've shifted my interests around in, into different areas. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a couple of lessons at you that come from two very different areas of my work. Um, one has to do with ethics and its connection with emotion, two areas I've done a fair amount of research on. Um, and, and the lesson I'm coming away with here is I think people need to attend to the ethics of the emotional side of their life, not just what we might call the cognitive or informational side. Um, and what I mean by that is I think a lot of people in, in business ethics, especially think about ethics in terms of things like deception and lying and corruption and those kinds of things. But I think there's some very interesting ethical questions having to do with how we use emotion in everyday interaction and also how employers, organizations expect emotions um, to be part of the kind of persona of their employees, the topic of emotional labor. And so I think the, I think we don't pay enough attention to the emotional side of ethics. The second lesson I want to draw is from a totally different body of work, some stuff I've done on free speech in the workplace and the ability of uh, the way employers manage employee expression and free expression, both on and off the job. And the lesson is that I wish people who run companies who, who are employers would avoid the trap of believing that free speech is somehow the enemy of harmony and efficiency in the workplace or in a university or in kind of any organizational context. The the law lets firms sometimes escape fault for suppressing free speech by claiming that this employee free speech, perhaps at work, perhaps off work, compromises efficiency and harmony. And I think there's there's too much of a hair trigger for that. And I, and I, and I really think we should all avoid this view that free speech is somehow the enemy of civility and the enemy of harmony. Um, because I actually think that's not the case. 
I also have a lesson that's that's not drawn from my research. Do you want me to hit that here? Uh, let's let's preview. I like these previews. Okay. Um, if I had to, th you know, you, you're the opportunity to talk to you, maybe think back a little bit on on my career and its trajectory. And if there's one word I would use to describe it, it's reinvention. Uh, I've been in this game for 30 years. And I have reinvented myself multiple times. I've reinvented my teaching. I've reinvented my research. I mean, the best example of this has to do with what I do in ethics, where I've been teaching ethics for 15 years. I've published in business ethics journals. I've been editor-in-chief for five years of one of the world's top business ethics journals. I, I, if I may confide, I've never had a course in ethics. I've never had a course in philosophy. It's just an interest that I that this profession allowed me to kind of take up and pursue. And, uh, and, and, I, and the lesson for me is that people should always think about how to reinvent themselves, and whether it's possible and not shy away from it. Because I think that's what uh, that's what makes professional life interesting. All right, this is going to be speaking of interesting, this will be interesting to try to dive into each of these in a little more There's detail, three very different areas and, and do this quickly. Um, you know, you mentioned you used the word dilettante. When I was in my very first organizational behavior seminar with Art Brief, he asked me what I was specifically interested in. And I said I was interested in organizational behavior, uh, which is lots of topics. And that's where my research tends to lie is in organizational behavior. So you mentioned ethics and the emotional side. Uh, do you want to go deeper on that? What do you mean by paying more attention to the emotion? And um, what ways do we get this wrong? And, and what would you suggest to help us get this better? Well, I started thinking about this connection in research I was doing on emotion and the role of emotion in negotiation. Um, and in a couple of papers, uh, a lot of the work on, on ethics in negotiation and especially deception lying in negotiation, very popular topic, uh, a lot of that work was always focused on what I call informational deception, lying about your bottom line, lying about your alternatives, um, lying about your goals, lying about your deadlines, all that kind of stuff. Um, and what I started to think about was the fact that, you know, when people engage in emotional subterfuge in life itself, but in negotiation in particular, um, they're lying in a different way. You know, they're lying about the emotional states they're experienced. They're, they're using that lie strategically. And that was a topic that had been pretty much completely ignored in the negotiation literature at the time and still doesn't get very much attention, but it got me thinking, and, and I think the lesson is, if you're going to think about your ethics in negotiation, you know, don't forget your emotional ethics, you know, don't just, don't just ponder whether I'm going to lie to this person about my bottom line or my alternatives, but am I actually going to present false emotions in a way that's intended to strategically manipulate people? Because I think, you know, when people start analogizing negotiation to something like, you know, well, it's just like poker and, you know, poker is a game full of emotional deception. Should negotiation be, um, you know, people have to always ask themselves whether, you know, what their own ethics are and whether that's acceptable. I think it's it's less acceptable than it's widely thought to be. Um, the other angle on this topic is a paper I did a few years ago connecting ethics and emotional labor, emotional labor being the, uh, the ways that employees centrally enact emotional displays as part of the job. You know, the, the waiter in a bad mood who puts on a happy face in order to you know, provide friendly service and you know be rewarded for it, that kind of thing. Um, 
I think there's some very interesting questions about the ethics of how emotional labor is performed, is expected by employers. And what we did in that paper was we talked about that um, and we tried to make some normative judgments. It was a normative paper. We tried to make some normative, draw some normative conclusions about when employers cross the line in um, their expectations for their employees' emotional labor. We think a lot about working conditions, but we don't often think about the ethical dimensions of the emotional part of working conditions. And that's what that work is about. So I think this is really interesting. And it makes me think of a conversation I had with my 13-year-old daughter, you know, firstborn child. I love her so much. And the other day, she was sending me a message with her body language that she was not very happy with me. And as I tried to talk to her about this, you know, she's like saying, what? I'm not doing anything wrong. Like I didn't say anything mean. I was like, yeah, but your body language is communicating a message to me that I don't like, it doesn't make me feel good. And so I think it's interesting how we exclude, you can say body language or emotion from uh, like, it's okay to be deceptive emotionally. And, and and we just like have this caveat. So I think that's a really interesting point um, that we should strive to be ethical and honest and straightforward in all the ways that we communicate, not just with our words. So you're saying your daughter was being genuine with her nonverbal. Yes, she was. She was being genuine, but she was she was almost like excluding this type of communication. Like it's, a, I'm not saying anything mean, so I'm okay here. Like, why are you getting after me? And I was like, yeah, but you're still communicating a message that is not very nice. Now, to your point, she was being transparent, so uh, she was not being deceptive. Um, but it, no, there are but different I ways we can communicate that we we shouldn't exclude. Um, of course, one of the things that parents do well is teach their children how to lie and how to be deceptive. And I think it sounds like you may have offered her a lesson on that occasion, <laughs> because what you essentially told her was um, you need to do a better job at emotional labor non-verbally um, in order to match your non-verbals with your verbals if you want to hide your disgust with me. Um, and yeah, that so might have her then, then become more practiced at it. So maybe I've unintentionally, right, taught her to be more deceptive. The goal is to teach her, you know, control your emotions and try to not be so upset with me. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a really interesting point you're making that maybe I unintentionally encouraged her to do the very thing that you're encouraging us to not do. Well, there's a, it's on my mind because tomorrow I teach um, Deception Day in my MBA ethics class. And one of the things I do is talk to them about sort of how children learn to be deceptive. And there's this uh, fellow up at the University of Toronto, a developmental psychologist who does research that shows that like half of all children lie by age two in his experiments wow. and uh, like 80% of them by age four. And, and it is parents essentially teaching kids to lie by cornering them into lies. Uh, and that's just sort of remarkable stuff. So you've already given me lots to think about, and that's just lesson one. So I got to listen to this again and think about this and, and how I communicate with my children. Lesson two, you were talking about free speech. Uh, the very first time I was in an academic setting, uh, somebody gave a talk, and then I remember people questioning that person intensely. And I thought, wow, this is uncomfortable. This this doesn't feel good. I'm used to like somebody talks and we clap and encourage uh, but it was kind of my first exposure to the importance of, like, let's talk about what's on our mind. Anyway, I'd love to hear more about um, this area for you, what got you interested in it, and um, any suggestions you might have for how to improve our behavior in this area. Well, what and, and my interest is in employee-free speech, um, 
not necessarily merely just in the kind of voice there's as you know a robust voice literature in our field of people speaking up at work about things they don't like at work or whistleblowing that kind of thing um and my interest is broader it's in employee speech on anything you know it could be water cooler talk about politics or sports it could be off work political activism that the employer happens to notice because your activism gets you on the 10 o'clock news and they're watching and all, all that. Um, and I started, I got interested in this topic originally some years ago when I started noticing some high profile cases, you know, newspaper accounts of people getting in trouble for their speech. Uh, there was a stockbroker in, in Houston who his off work hobby was uh, um, advocating for bans on affirmative action, having nothing to do with his work. He worked as a stockbroker, but the brokerage firm ended up essentially firing him because they thought he was a liability to the organization because he was developing this kind of, you know, persona in the city as an advocate off work. And I started thinking about the way organizations regulate the free speech activities of their employees, both on the job and off. And um, that led to a um, couple of articles and a book on the subject. Um, and I'm a, I'm a lifelong civil libertarian. I'm on the board of directors of the ACLU, not just of Tennessee, but of the national ACLU. And um, so I think about those issues a lot. And and one of the things I discovered and where this lesson comes from is that is that a lot of employers will justify clamping down on free speech and with social media and politics being everywhere these days, these cases come up all the time now. Um, you know, and one of the things employers, of course, are always worried about is the idea that, well, if we have everybody engaged in all this all this free speech, it, it, it's gonna we're not gonna get any work done. And it is going to interfere with our ability to be, you know, an efficient workplace and a harmonious workplace. And, and the law actually recognizes that employers can use that justification often to try to get themselves out of lawsuits that, that happen in this domain. And that's a whole rabbit hole we don't need to go down. Um, but, but for me, the lesson is that, that people who run organizations need to not regard free speech as such a threat. Yes, of course, some forms of it are are problematic, but but it's not generically such a threat. I mean, people need to be treated as adults. Um, who and organizations need to understand that a lot of people live out their adult lives at work. Um, work may be the only place they have a lot of you know adult conversations with other other humans, and uh, it's where social networks form and friendships form and romances for him and all of that and 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 i just think that speech is is free speech and free expression are not not the enemy of a of a productive efficient harmonious workplace and not reflexively think that that's the case so that's that's the, the angle i take on this um and you know I, i'll say one other thing about this when when i did my book on the subject i did a lot of interviews and i was writing about you know people being fired for blogging or that kind of thing um and giving examples. And, and I, I did a lot of interviews and interviewers would say, you know, this is very interesting and troubling to think about, but does this ever happen? And my answer was not a lot, but the problem is um, if the, the threat of it happening causes people to, you know, sort of shut down their expressive life to self-censor, that, that doesn't just harm a, a person's expressive life. It also has a potential to harm civic society. It means people are reluctant to get involved in civic affairs because they fear it might get them trouble at work. The funny thing is when, you know, when I would say, well, this doesn't happen a lot, but it's a threat to the broader body politic, 
the fact of the matter is now it does happen a lot, right? We're we're hearing about these cases yeah. all the time where people are getting in trouble for their their curricular and extracurricular expressive activities. So, uh, well, the thought I had is is maybe this point is more related to your first point than I had first realized because part mm-hmm. of this issue of not being able to express ourselves at work, where we spend so much time, is now we're have we're we're suppressing. And it may be the way we really think or things we want to say. And so we're engaging in not necessarily deceptive behavior, but we're omitting behavior that we might otherwise want right. to share. And so people aren't getting an accurate uh, read on maybe how we're actually feeling or thinking. Right. And, you know, at work with respect to voice that is related to work, related to work processes and such, you know, companies, employers are always having trouble getting employees to speak up the idea of a speak up culture where where people feel comfortable um, talking about workplace problems and maybe even, yes, squealing or reporting on truly bad behavior among their colleagues. It's very hard to develop that culture because people are fearful of the consequences, fearful of retaliation. And, and my concern in thinking about expression on not just workplace issues, but just on anything, um, I, I worry about how that affects people's lives. I mean, it's 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 a it's a much less interesting society if everybody is scared to become involved in civic affairs because it might screw up their job. Um, and I'm putting the burden on those who are providing the jobs to 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 make it to be more accommodating of people's expressive lives. Yeah, I think that's interesting. The employers want the employees to voice, you know, organizational citizenship type behaviors. So it's right. like, yes, we want you to voice, 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 but don't voice these things. And now you've left it the employee to try to figure out like, okay, well, do I voice or don't I voice? Well, we're, we're going long, but I like it. I really like what you're talking about. <laughs> so I want to keep going, but I want to be sensitive to your time. Do you want yeah. to uh, expound uh, in these last few minutes on your final topic about reinvention? Well, as I said at the outset, um, I've reinvented myself a few times. And to me, the work I do in ethics is like a you know, on the one hand, it's a public confession that I'm completely unqualified to be doing this work. But on the other hand, <laughs> um, it's a real, I think it's a testament to the idea that you can. Now, at some level, this reinvention idea is something kind of specific to our field, um, being, you know, academics, having the great fortune to be at research-oriented universities, um, in social sciences. You know, one of the things I've always told both prospective graduate students and others that I love about the field that we're in, management generally, organizational behavior specifically, is that um, you can kind of study any topic on anything in using any method or any disciplinary lens. And now that may be a little bit excessive in my expansiveness with that sentence, but I mean, you know, you can in our field be successful publish articles, um, publish work, do good work, you know, wearing the hat of a sociologist or a psychologist or an anthropologist or a political scientist. And uh, uh, and there's others I'm leaving out. Um, and to me, that's always fantastic. But what it does is it, it, it creates a landscape that invites reinvention. If you can study so much using so many different lenses, then, you know, then do that. We're all told in graduate school in, in this kind of work, you know, you must focus, narrow, become a specialist in one area so that you will be known for that area, so that you will pass promotion review and get tenure and such. 
that's all true as career advice. I found it stultifying as life advice. So um, uh, I, I guess when I had to write like a statement that says, you know, at the time you get tenure or promotion to full, and you have to write a statement that provides some sort of coherent, you know, picture of how your research all fits together and makes some big contribution. That was kind of a work of creative writing for me. Um, <laughs> but but my but the lesson is to, to to sort of come to the point. The lesson is, folks, not just in our field, but in any field, should think about the idea of are there ways you can reinvent yourself. I mean, if you're happy, completely happy the tunnel you're in, I guess there's no need. But um, but I think most people, many people look for variety and I think reinvention is often possible, but you do have to just sort of plunge yourself into it. And I think the the example, my example in my own academic biography involving, involving the work I do in ethics, I think is a perfect example that you can pull it off and, uh, and it, it just makes professional and personal life more interesting. Well, that's inspiring to me because when I go up for tenure, uh, I, I will look to you then on how to creatively craft my <laughs> research journey as I've got research in overconfidence and voice and groups and teams. And, yeah, uh, you know, it's all in organizational exactly. behavior, which is my uh, right. angle. But, uh, yeah, I love the idea of we have the opportunity. So uh, take advantage of it if it interests and you. I, and, and, I, and I'll tell you something. You know, the fact of the matter is what lies beneath this for me a lot is I get bored. You know, to work on something. I want to work on something different. I used to joke with folks that my my overall professional career goal as a publishing social scientist is to publish in every journal once. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I, I haven't quite gotten there yet. But uh, I, I I just get bored and want to you know <laughs> different things interest me, and I want to go in those different directions. Well, it's it's great for me to hear that from you. I'm certainly a kindred spirit in that regard, uh, and I hope I can uh, get tenure and continue to publish in all of these different journals because I've never published in the same journal twice uh, yet. Excellent! I completely so, endorse that career strategy. Well, Bruce, thanks so much for sharing these lessons. I I love them. I am, you've already challenged me, and I've got some more thinking to do. I look forward to applying them. It, it was great to connect again. And again, I just really appreciate your time. So thanks so much for coming on today. That's great fun to do. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. When I think of Bruce Berry, I think of someone wise who challenges societal norms, helping us to be more ethical, effective, and fulfilled. And I love the lessons he shared. First, when we think of ethics, we often think in terms of explicit lying, deception, or corruption, but we probably don't pay enough attention to the emotional side of ethics. When we engage in emotional deceit, we're just lying in a different way. For example, people often compare negotiation to poker, but poker is full of emotional deception. And if we agree that it's generally unethical to deceive, we should count emotional deception as unethical. I was also especially intrigued by Bruce's comments on children and deception. Approximately half of all children are deceptive by age 2 and 80% by age 4. And it's likely due in large part to parents, just like me, unintentionally teaching our children to lie. When we force people to suppress their emotions, we may be cornering them into lies, teaching them emotional deception. Second, employers should embrace free speech rather than view it as a threat. Employers are constantly striving to get employees to speak up about workplace problems. However, employees are fearful of retaliation if they do speak up, so they tend not to. If organizations truly want employees to speak up, then employers need to create a culture where employees won't be punished for sharing their views. And that includes their beliefs around non-work issues.
Bruce first wrote a book on this topic in 2007 called Speechless, The Erosion of Free Expression in the American Workplace. Back then, people rarely got fired for their activism or beliefs. But Bruce could see where things were headed if we didn't change course, and things have only gotten worse since then. If people are concerned about getting fired for their civic engagement, this can harm not only the organizations themselves, but also people will be less likely to get involved in civic affairs, thus harming civic life and civic society. Finally, Bruce has been teaching ethics for 15 years, has published numerous articles in business ethics journals, and been editor-in-chief of one of the world's top business ethics journals, all without having ever taken an ethics or philosophy course. Had Bruce just stayed in his lane, he would have never had these opportunities. I love Bruce's advice to think about how you can and reinvent yourself. If you're completely happy in your tunnel, then it's fine to stay in it. But many people look for variety, and reinvention can make both personal and professional life more interesting. Remember that reinvention is possible, but sometimes you just have to plunge yourself into it. In summary, we should encourage authenticity, free speech, and reinvention. All simple ideas, please take them seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thank you for all of your support.